Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. On this episode, our guests include Chris Ruder, a Junto graduate, and Grant Gochnauer, a Junto mentor. So let's begin with Chris Ruder, co-founder and CEO of Spikeball Inc., which is creating the next great American sport through its core product, Spikeball. It is played on thousands of beaches, backyards, college campuses, and swimming pools every day around the world. You can see it in action at spikeball.com. Chris and his team graduated from Junto's program in 2014, and I've personally witnessed not only the company's growth, but also Chris's immense personal growth. In particular, he's devoted himself to improving in the areas of listening, learning, and building self-awareness. In fact, he's been so devoted that a couple of years ago, I asked him to teach our class on leadership and self-awareness. He's a deeply loyal guy to his family and friends, community, and the Spikeball team. At the same time, he's got this fascinating balance of being a no-nonsense person while having an irreverent sense of humor and a deep soul. While Spikeball may be our most famous graduate company, I'm more proud of the work that Chris has put into improving himself as a CEO and a man and the impact that both have had on the business. Welcome, Chris. It's uh, an absolute delight to have you on Flourishing Together. Happy to be here. Thank you, Raman. So like we customarily do, both in Junto Sessions and on the podcast, we're going to open up with um, the emotion wheel and uh, ask you how you're feeling today. Yeah, I'd say I am feeling happy, content, maybe a small splash of anxiousness. Um, let's throw grateful in there as well. Awesome. Um, oh, I got to say how I'm doing. Feeling a lot. A ton of sadness because I lost a family member this past week and today's the funeral and I wasn't able to be there. Sorry to hear that. Also feeling a lot of love as a result of that because I've been exchanging some messages with family members and uh, it's always uh, wonderful when these types of things, despite how hard they are, bring people together. And uh, also a little anxiousness, both positive and negative for some things that are coming up. Cool. Uh, so let's begin as we have been with this podcast with your first recollection of leadership. Um, sometimes I struggle with the what's your favorite or what's your first memory or what's the, so not trying to evade the question, but I'll give sort of my first couple, if you will. So my dad ran his own business. So I got to witness his interactions with his employees, suppliers, et cetera. My grandfather ran his own business, uh, had a tractor store, which sold obviously tractors. He ran a farm equipment auction house for a while. My mother was a teacher, you know, all three of those pretty strong influences, I think, in sort of how I was raised and kind of how I witnessed their interaction either with, you know, I didn't get to see obviously my mom with her students all that much. I went on a couple field trips with her and her kids from time to time. But, you know, in high school, I was hauling furniture for my dad at his furniture store. My brother and I, yeah, whether it be hauling mattresses up and down stairs or driving the delivery truck or trying to translate my dad's handwriting, which is very difficult. That was in the day of before being able to look up instructions, directions online, and we're driving all over backcountry roads trying to find homes where we're going to deliver this furniture. And then it was also kind of a runner boy for my grandpa at his auction. All three of them, I just saw a level of respect for the people that they worked with, whether the people worked for them or they were colleagues. And none of them were like control freaks where they needed 
absolute control over the people they worked with, but they all more or less had control over themselves and they got to decide what they were doing. And I think that planted a pretty deep seed with me. One thing I've always admired about you amidst all of your positive personality characteristics is your dedication to philanthropy and activism. It's also one of the things I've noticed that many people don't know about you. It doesn't get talked about a lot because I have a lot of conversations about Spikeball, about you, your team, and I don't believe one person has ever brought this up. Yet I know a few people within Junto are aware of it only because of social media. So I'd love for you to start with what shaped your philanthropy efforts, your activism, and where you trace those roots to. I think it's like it, like everything, childhood. I've got a twin sister and an older brother. You know, the word you'd use today, the relationship between he and I, I'd consider him sort of the older brother bully. Good news is he and I are very tight today and we've got a great relationship, but not so much when we were kids. So I was on the receiving end of a lot of stuff that I didn't feel was necessarily fair. I didn't deserve whatever it was I was getting. Now, if Matt were sitting in this room, he'd probably say, actually, you probably did. Of course, my, my memory is one, his is another. So I'm sure my, my hands are not quite as clean as I remember. But I do remember that that really tore at me and it just drove me crazy. Like, yeah, I didn't deserve getting punched by him or, you know, whatever it might have been. Growing up with that, I think, you know, allowed me to put myself in the shoes of, you know, without trying to sound high and mighty, like, you know, injustice. Again, something I didn't feel I deserved. And, you know, there was another big moment in my childhood. Um, my best friends, they live across the street from me. Uh, their dad was kidnapped buried alive and and died. Um, and again, injustice. He didn't deserve that. That was just absolutely horrible. And seeing that those things can happen, you know, it was just absolutely terrible. I think that's what's influenced it. You know, there's millions of people that have experienced far worse than I have. But in my world, I think I'm a little more sensitive to when I do see an injustice happening, or I do see that that playing field may not be level. I speak up and I take action and, you know, some people are, you know, that's too bad. And then they'll go on with their day and that's fine. More often than not, I'm like, that's too bad. How can I help? I have, I'd say a megaphone that's probably larger than most just because of my involvement with the company. I do feel a responsibility to use it. I think it's just that experience of kind of knowing what it's like to be on the receiving end of something that isn't right. You didn't deserve it or whatever it may be and wanting to take action and, and try to help. Okay. Let's stay on this track of your activism and philanthropy. How do they intersect with your personal beliefs and values? I know you're a pretty principled guy. Your values driven both as a company, but also as a human being. How have those influenced your beliefs and values and how have your beliefs and values influenced your activism? I think they're one and the same. You know, I don't really have a set of personal values in my left hand and then business values or activism values in my right hand, they are the same. You know, if you look at the values that myself and all the employees at Spikeball, we've defined, you know, the values that are for the company, every single one of those are applicable to my personal life. And, you know, those aren't values that I just one day scribbled and handed them to the employees and said, here's our values. All 24 employees' fingerprints are all over those. We review them once a year, and we basically put them up on a screen or just sit in a circle and go through them one by one and ask everybody, are these still relevant to you? Should we add one or delete one? Should we add a period, add or delete a word, et cetera? You know, I've worked at plenty of companies in the past. All of them had values, 
never once was I asked, Chris, what do these values mean to you? Or are these relevant to you? You know, the most famous example, Enron had fantastic values. They just didn't actually live them. They were on a beautiful plaque in the hallway and that was about it. Yeah. And I think that may be one reason why I'm so engaged with Spikeball and, you know, why I just love the work itself is because a lot of what the company stands for, and yes, that's heavily influenced by me, but also all 24 employees, is that it's not all that different than what I do on my own time and what I believe. I worked at big corporations, a couple smaller startups, and um, none of them uh, sort of brought those two close together. And I think that's probably a big reason of why I just wasn't all that engaged in my past jobs. And that's exactly what they were. They were jobs. I left at five and I kind of didn't think about them until I went the next day. So let's stay on track with the values conversation with Spikeball. A couple of months ago, we were both part of a conversation where someone asked you how Spikeball team lives out its values on a day-to-day basis. And then you said, that's a good question. I'm going to go and find out. Tell us what you did and what the outcome was. Yeah. So I posted a uh, note on our internal base camp, call it town hall. It's sort of a message that goes to everybody and asked everyone if they had any recent examples of their coworkers living out our values. And I didn't know if I was going to get crickets or maybe one or two replies. And it was a little quiet. And then, I don't know, maybe an hour later, somebody replied to one and then another. And then it was like this waterfall of everybody listing out colleagues, you know, naming them by name, naming the value itself, and then whatever that particular example was. You know, I just smiled ear to ear seeing that because, you know, it didn't take them much thought to have to come up with these examples. And just the amount of responses I got, I was like, all right, we're we're doing something right here. And for uh, the listeners, I want to stress that what makes this even more special is the fact that Spikeball has a completely distributed team. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing for people in a company to know the values, practice them when they're with each other day in and day out. But in your case, you guys come together twice a year. All the other interaction, I mean, sometimes they come together in onesies and twosies or small groups, small teams, but the whole company comes together twice a year. Otherwise, it's all virtual interaction. Yeah, absolutely. We rarely see each other. You know, maybe if there's a trade show or a conference or something, two or three people may get together. But yeah, 99% of it is remote. We don't even do video calls that often. We should, but we don't. And it's been really interesting to see how tight everybody is. You know, we do have a team call every Monday morning. And those we always begin those with a high and a low. And you know, those can be personal or business. So we do get to hear about that. And you know, we'll hear about, you know, a a child being born, maybe somebody just bought a house, you know, maybe grandma passed away, you know, personal stuff. So that definitely helps the fact that we have that vehicle to open up around that. And, you know, I think a line that I believe I learned from you uh, was, you know, you're supposed to hire, fire and manage based on your values. I'm trying to get better at that. So if I do see somebody, you know, exemplifying one of our values, rather than just saying, you know, good job, so and so I'll say, you know, great job of embracing our value of don't be a jerk. You know, that's a simple one. Another one is listen, improve, always be learning. That's probably one that I use or compliment people on the most. And that just means a lot more to people than good job. Good job can mean one of a million things. But if it's good job on living out this value, this particular value, then I think that's just worth its weight in gold. And it's also a reminder that wait, yeah, these values actually are something. It's not just something we're talking about once a year at that at whatever retreat it may be. So we're going to shift gears a little bit and 
talk about growth, which you and I have had a lot of conversations on. It's been the topic of many sessions that you've been in, in, in Junto. And I want to go like straight at it with respect to you, your growth as a man, a husband, a father, a friend, CEO. I've seen that drive in you from day one and would love to hear where you think that drive for growth comes from. I think it comes from, you know, as I kind of referenced earlier, you know, whether it be a lot of my family members, they sort of, you know, we've got sort of this entrepreneurial bug and have a lot of control over our own lives. I didn't have that when I worked at big corporations. And I think what's driving the growth and me just, quote, wanting to get better at, you know, whatever it is in life. I think I feel as long as I'm growing, I'll have control over what I want to do. And again, I'm not, I don't want people to think Chris needs control over people. I need control over me. People ask me, you know, what's the best thing about your job? The answer always is when I wake up in the morning, I get to decide what I'm going to do. I have that control. And for the most part, all of our employees have that as well. I love that. And I think that's one reason why, you know, we've literally only had one person quit in our six years of having full-time employees. I mean, you know, and sometimes it works well, other times it doesn't. You know, I've heard from family members and from employees say, Chris, it's never enough. You always want more, more, more. I get that. I, and I'm, I'm trying to work on that and I try to celebrate success when we have it. But at least I know for me, I'm never going to be that person when I'm retired, I'm just like, yeah, I'm happy to just hang on the beach until I die or whatever. Like, I, I have a feeling I'm still going to be learning up until my last breath. And whether that be reading a book or spending a lot of time on Twitter or just meeting with interesting people, just always wanting to be growing, I think, is my best defense against losing that control over my own time and sort of what I get to do. Yeah, I can relate to you about how it affects other people. As I've been grown over the years, my standards for how I live my life, who I spend my time with have changed. Mm -hmm. As you know, I'm a believer in standards versus expectations. So other people take those as expectations, which I can't control their perception of it, but that's what it is. And therefore there tends to be some tension in that regard. Yep. What other struggles have you had when it comes to growth? Like what comes in the way of your pursuit for that? I don't have a formal growth plan for myself. I listened to your podcast with Deborah from Aero Payments. I think she has 11 uh, things and it seemed like very formal. And I was like, my God, I love that. That is so awesome. But I know how I work and I, my level of organization is nowhere near that. So I think I struggle with, all right, am I doing enough? Should I do a more formal growth plan of some sorts? And that works for others. I know me. I know if I tried that, I'd do it for a couple of weeks and then I'd just stop. Um, so one thing I struggle with, I think, is where do I want to grow? And you know, not necessarily that there's shiny objects, but where do I want to invest my time in what areas? So I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. Sometimes it's books, sometimes it's conferences, sometimes, yeah, it's, it's meeting with people. And that's made me happy. And sometimes, you know, as leader of the company, I worry like, okay, am I focusing too much on developing myself and not as much on on our employees. You know, I have, I have a business coach and I speak with him every couple of weeks and that's been fantastic for me. I have a therapist up until recently had an advisory board and I'm in the process of potentially rebuilding that. So I've got a lot of people that I can bounce things off of and that's great for me. I don't think my team has that. 
So I want to start digging into that and how can we address that? You know, a few of them have some people outside that they can go to for help or for some guidance, but I've just been starting to think about how can we formalize this across the company? You know, if it's such a valuable thing for me, I got a feeling it would be for everybody else as well. Even though you acknowledge that you may not be as organized and structured as other people when it comes to your growth, but I know that you have a growth practice and you're somewhat legendary within Junto for the three plus years you've been exercising on a daily basis, uh, whether it's 10, 20 minutes or a full hour. What else do you do from a practice standpoint on a regular basis? Maybe not every day or every week, but just on a regular basis. How, what do you engage in? Uh, Twitter. Interesting. <laughs> a lot of people throw Twitter in with the, the social media bucket. And most people hang their head in shame when they think about how much time they spend on it. I learn so much from Twitter, you know, and of course it depends on who you follow. If you're following people that may not be delivering fantastic content or something you're going to learn from, then okay, yeah. But I, I consider, you know, Facebook is great for people you know. Twitter is for people you wish you knew. And a lot of the people I follow are just business people or activists or you name it, but just people that are much smarter than I and they're sharing content and I'm learning what they're interested in. And I absolutely love it. I spend, yeah, a lot of time on it. And I'd say 95% of the time is, I believe, time well spent. Now, there's another uh, gentleman named Shane Parrish. He's got a Twitter handle or a blog called uh, Farnham Street Blog. And I've been, learned a lot from him. Yeah, there's just a, a lot of goodness there. And you also, you know, sometimes I'll go to conferences. A month ago, I went to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting in Omaha. 40,000 people go to this thing every year so they can listen to Warren Buffett talk for six hours. And I'm happy I went. It's probably going to be a one-time thing, but what a cool experience. And just to kind of sit in the same room, although albeit that room is a stadium, it, it, was, it, it was a neat experience. Uh, what books are you reading right now? I've been reading Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's right-hand man. What else am I reading? Recently dusted off the book that you gave me to read again, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. Loved that one. Yeah, I think those are the two I've got going on right now. Usually I'll start and stop a couple. I used to be of the ilk that if you start a book, no matter what, you absolutely have to finish it. And I've been reading some others that, you know, sort of giving permission, like, yeah, just because you buy it doesn't mean you have to to finish it. And that's been sort of liberating for me. All right. Well, thanks for the time, Chris. We're going to uh, finish off like we do in Junto with closing appreciations. Absolutely. So I appreciate the, of course, appreciate any time I have with you, but especially these questions. They were deep. They weren't. Can you please tell us the spike ball story? Yeah. Wildly different than what I've experienced in the past. So I appreciate this and, and just everything you're doing with Junto. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate your dedication. I've noticed now after being friends with you and, and having you as a customer as well, that dedication kind of underscores who you are and what you do. And whether it's your family, whether it's your employees, whether it's your beneficiaries of your philanthropy, it comes from this place of focused dedication. And I'm just excited for how many other people are going to be affected by that in the long term. Thank you. That feels very nice to hear. Our next conversation is with Grant Gochnauer. In addition to being a mentor, Grant is co-founder and CTO of Vidori Inc. Vidori is a technology company whose cloud-based software revolutionizes how life science companies 
move regulated content from ideation through review, approval, and distribution. They have about 40 team members, mostly in Chicago, and you can learn more at Vodori.com. That's V-O-D-O-R-I.com. Grant has been a mentor at Junto for over two years and brings an invigorating sense of energy and enthusiasm to our sessions. He has that unique blend of technology chops, an appreciation of people and culture, and a magnetic personality. I love being around him and learning from him. As you'll hear, he's very devoted to personal growth and works hard at it every day. He has an infectious smile and is an inspiring leader who I'm proud to have involved with the Junto Institute. Welcome, Grant. Awesome to have you here on uh, Flourishing Together. Thank you for having me. As we do every single episode, we want to begin with uh, the emotion wheel and check in with how each of us is uh, feeling right now. Absolutely. I'm feeling, uh, today I'm feeling very grateful, which apparently is on the version two of the emotion wheel, which I got a preview of today. I'm very grateful for the fact that I get to wake up every morning to the smiling faces of my two daughters who are three months and three years. I'm also feeling very excited and enthusiastic about what's going on at Vidori. Nice. I'm feeling a little anxious because we've got a couple things coming down the pipe in the next uh, few weeks that I'm thinking a lot about. Anxious in a good way, so not anxious in a bad way. And also pretty elated. And I'm just going to leave it at that because it'll take up too much time for me to talk about. So let's dive right in. Sure. Uh, your first recollection of leadership. How does leadership resonate with you as you reflect back in your life with respect to the first time you noticed it? It's interesting. As I reflected back, my first recollections were really closer to entrepreneurship, which then I think blossomed into leadership. So when I was 10, I started a business called a bolt. It's a BBS, a bulletin board system where folks would dial into with their modems. This is before AOL, before really people were using the internet. So I was always kind of a, a self-starter. I'd find something interesting and I kind of go after it uh, and like to build things. And so I think most of my memories are around those kinds of activities. But if I were to to think about leadership specifically, I think it probably came out in school first. We all remember the class projects where they assemble a random group of students together, and then someone ultimately needs to organize the team and then be the spokesperson for that. Usually that person ends up doing most of the work too, but uh, that's probably my first recollection is taking the lead because what was surprising to me at the time was I always felt it was like everyone wanted to be the leader to organize the group and like make forward progress and make sure we're driving toward, you know, getting things done. And generally no hands were raised. And I was like, wow, that's, that always surprised me as a kid. And so I just was like, oh, of course I'm going to do that. This is really fun because um, as we've now held the first uh, set of interviews for this podcast, it's been so interesting to hear how many of our guests have had their their first recollection was from their childhood, which, you know, if you had asked me that a few months ago as we were planning this, I wouldn't have thought that it was this many. So that's pretty cool. It's a yeah. nice little pattern I'm seeing. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. So we're going to talk a lot about your beliefs, your values, and how they have translated into the, the things that you do on a daily basis, more so from an activism standpoint. As I have reflected on our friendship over the years, one thing I've noticed that we have in common is this strong conviction about a lot of things and how they're rooted in our values and our beliefs and then how they manifest themselves. And I've had the the joy of experiencing some of that, not just hearing it from you, but also experiencing it. So that's going to be kind of the, the focal point of our conversation. So I want to start by having you 
share some of your core beliefs and values with respect to both business and life. Sure. And one thing for our, our audience is that we're not going to be focusing necessarily on corporate values, but rather a person's values. So this is really about uh, you, Grant. I'll start with a story. My mom likes to tell this story, which is as a child, maybe around six years old, I would look up at my mom when she said, hey, it's time to go to school. And I would say, why do I need to go to school? If there's anything I don't know, I'll just look it up. And that kind of ideology that I've had in my whole life kind of has permeated everything about the way that I've grown as a into an adult. That curiosity, that kind of insatiable quest for knowledge and improvement, coupled with kind of this belief that if there's anything you want to accomplish in life, it just really just takes hard work and grit. And if you persevere, like you can achieve a lot more things than I think people will maybe realize at the outset. There's actually a Steve Jobs quote that I really love and it resonated with me quite a bit, which is life could be so much broader once you discover one simple fact. And that is everything around you that you call life was made up of people who are no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. Like to me, that is like an embodiment of the fact that as an individual, if you have so much ability to make changes in the world. So as you see the world around you, if you don't if you don't like the way something is, then go out and change it. And that does relate a little bit into my activism, that kind of mindset. But that's also, you know, the naivety that went into starting the business too. You're like, oh, of course, this is easy. Anyone could do this thing. You're like, oh man, this is so much harder than than I ever expected. Uh, but if you didn't have that combination of those things, maybe you wouldn't have started the business. So let's go further. What, what what are one of the beliefs that you have with respect to your career, your professional life, your business? Whether it's permeated the business or not doesn't matter to me. It's more just what does Grant believe in when it comes to work, when it comes to career, when it comes to professional? I believe that there is a real power in diversity and diversity of thinking, diversity of people and contributions and teams to make tremendous impact and create a lot of value. I think as someone who maybe started with the mindset of, well, I can just do all the things if I just figure it out myself. As you grow, you realize that actually you know, you you do have limitations and you understand what your strengths are. And then understanding the power of bringing people together to do things, I think is a very exciting kind of b- to believe in the power of teams, basically. I do have a, a, a strong belief in, in working hard, but also being balanced. So I think when we talk about Vidori, you know, we want to work hard, but we also want to give people the opportunity to take time with their families. And if there's sick time or there's this vacation they've been looking forward to for a long time, you know, go do those things. We want to encourage people to have a whole life. And also as someone who is gay, also we want to make sure that we're, we're, we're creating a culture and a place that people can bring their whole selves to work. And I think that goes back into the diversity aspect, which is if you can have the whole person and reflect the value that that whole person brings and celebrate the whole person, you know, a lot more magic can happen. So back to this idea of, of balance or, you know, other people call it harmony or integration. A week or two ago, you shared a story when you talked about one of your higher performing team members tends to take a fair amount of time off. Yeah, yeah. But go ahead and explain yeah. the story and, yeah. and, 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 your, and also the Vidori policy on time sure. off. Sure. Yeah. So at Vidori, we got rid of our PTO policy and we encourage slash require everyone to take at least two to three weeks off per year. I think it's healthy. It's good for the business. It's good for people to get out and refresh. An interesting correlation as we 
look across, you know, was, you know, when you get rid of the PTO policy, you have all this hand wringing around, oh my gosh, are people going to abuse it? And are we gonna, people going to be here? Can we depend on the team being around to do the work? And what we found was surprising, which was that the highest performing people oftentimes took more time off than the average. But those were the people that were also putting in the hours during the week. They showed up, you know, there was something due the next day and they were up until 1130 that night getting it ready. Those were the people that also were, you know, the highest performing. They were, they were contributing exceptionally and then needed to take time. And so, you know, that was healthy. So beyond diversity, Grant, what other values and beliefs have emerged for you and especially those that you carry with you through day-to-day life as well as work? As a child, I always knew that I was gay, but I never accepted it until I was actually, I came out when I was 26. Coupled with that was the fact that I was also overweight as a child. And so I had a combination of being heavy which meant teasing and bullying. And I also knew that I was different because I knew I was gay, but I didn't really know what that meant. And I couldn't fully form, like I have a sophisticated idea of what that meant. I just meant, I just knew that I was different, but between being heavy and getting teased and knowing that I felt different and I was different, it caused me to reflect a lot on the self and to try to look and understand who I am as a person but it also reinforced kind of this fuel within me, fuels a fire around injustice, discrimination, and, and just the concept of just bullying and, and seeing, you know, this conversation was came to the forefront, I think maybe like five years ago about bullying and the tremendous impact, negative impact that has on our children. So I had, I had lived through a lot of that as a youth, and that has absolutely influenced and informed who I am today. I would argue that it makes me a stronger person today, but it was also pain and difficulty that ultimately made me stronger. But I will still always have those painful memories. But that also gives me the empathy when I see discrimination in any form or injustice. I My heart immediately goes out to those people and the situation just makes me angry, frankly. And that kind of fuel is what drove me to much of the you know activism that that brought me to Equality Illinois in Chicago and uh, some more other organizations. So, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. That's a moving story. And I don't talk about it a whole lot, but when my family first immigrated to the US from Canada, I was nine years old and it was the hardest time of my life. In fact, I call it the lowest point of my life, not lowest in terms of looking back with respect to pain and suffering, but the lowest that I recall myself feeling in any one moment. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the discrimination that was lobbied at my brother and me at the time. We're of Indian American, now call ourselves Indian American, mm-hmm. back then Indi- Canadian Indian or whatever it's called, <laughs> Indian origin. My yeah. parents immigrated from India to Canada and then down to Chicago. And uh, we got made fun of for being Indian. Mm-hmm. We got made fun of, believe it or not, for having Canadian accents. and. I remember how out of place I felt. And for months, my brother and I, we were, what, nine and seven at the time, cried on a day-to-day basis about being in this strange land. And yeah, back then we didn't call it bullying. We just had made fun of or picked on. But it's something that has also Mm -hmm. carried me into adulthood, you know, and even now father of two young uh, women who've been just incredible daughters. And I don't talk about it a whole lot, but it has shaped how I approach this idea of being different. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's never been about how different we are, because the truth is, as you and I know, everyone is different. Absolutely, It's just whether it manifests in something so, let's say, tangible as skin color or sexual orientation. Yeah, there's two two additional thoughts on that. There's this really great 
concept from Ray Dalio, which is basically the, the formula is pain plus reflection equals progress. And so as I went through painful events in my childhood, I mentioned that I had had to spend a lot of time reflecting on what that meant. And I think as I was describing, I felt like that gave me the ability to move forward. It allowed me to progress. The other component is that it's interesting where now as an adult, and I mentioned this earlier around the power of diversity and bringing diverse groups of people together to solve problems, how as a child, you're teased because you're different. And yet right there in the very fact that you're different is something so special and powerful. And only later do we, can we appreciate that, that, that that's true. Before we go further, explain who Ray Dalio is, partially because the book obviously fits so well into this conversation. Yeah. So Ray Dalio is a hedge fund manager and wrote a book called Principles. Yes. Principles. Thank you. I can remember that top of my head. Fantastic book. Ray Dalio basically outlines the principles that he uses in work and life and how those have guided his success. It's, it's a fascinating, almost scientific engineering-based perspective on how to engineer a life that is of a, you know, of a high quality of what, how he, he would describe it. And it's not about making money. It's really about being the best version of you and how to create the best life. You've mentioned activism a couple of times, so let's kind of transition over there. How have these beliefs of yours affected or shaped your activism? So I think that starting with some of the concepts that I highlighted earlier around that everything can be changed and that not settling for the way things are with the belief, again, that you can change everything and the, uh, coupled with this fuel around this, this fire around wanting to fix this injustice, or you see these this discrimination going on and don't want to accept it. And you, you can put yourself in the shoes of the situation and you're like, this is, this is unacceptable. So I had the opportunity to be on the board of Equality Illinois for about 12 years. I was board president of the C4 organization for gosh, four or five years. And Equality Illinois has provided a tremendous amount of value for Illinois, not just LGBTQ. So for example, they were the organization that championed and passed anti-bullying legislation in Illinois. Uh, Obviously, they brought civil unions and then ultimately marriage. They brought the Safe Schools Act, which was signed into law in uh, June 2010. They've promoted, lobbied, and won passage of amendments for the Human Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Things like access to medical care or changing like simple things like changing the gender on your driver's license without surgery for uh, our trans friends. So there's a whole bunch of things that the organization has done that's made Illinois a safer place for everybody. And it's truly a a wonderful organization. It's it's just been um, amazing to be able to participate. Okay, so Grant, we're going to transition into uh, a new topic, something that is very near and dear to both of our hearts and that uh, both you and I geek out about, and that is personal growth. You're as committed to it as anyone who I know. One of the other things that I geek out on that you may not be aware of is this idea of origins. It's one of the reasons why I fell in love with entrepreneurship is I just love the start of things. So I'm kind of curious, what's your first memory of caring about personal growth? Um, when did you become aware of it? How did you become aware of it? Where does it come from? So I think I've always been innately curious, which has given me this kind of insatiable quest for knowledge. 
And with more knowledge, you have opportunities to see gaps in your own life. I think where it really started for me, though, was when I got serious about my health and I had to understand what it would take for me to lose weight because I was overweight from maybe age six through 20. Um, and I lost about 75 pounds and I started lifting and getting serious about diet. And a lot of that meant understanding and experimenting. So understanding diet, understanding exercise, understanding like what works for me. And it required a systematic process. And through experimentation and creating these systems that allowed me to start seeing results, ended up kind of fueling this passion around can I apply this kind of systematic thinking to other areas of my life? And there's a great satisfaction in life when you set out a goal for yourself and you're able to achieve it. So part of this is also saying, you know, I think I can be better here and I'm going to set a goal to accomplish X. And so then you go about that path and with a systems mindset, which includes, you know, setting, you know, creating healthy habits and experimentation and tracking and, and trying to like iterate on what works for you. And if something isn't working, discard it and try something else. That system thinking and seeing the results allowed me to apply to all areas of my life. And I kind of became a little bit of a junkie around trying to improve all, all areas of my life. And this includes when in 2005, we started the company. And so there's so much to learn about starting a business and it's overwhelming. How do I build a, you know, an engineering team? How do we sell products? How do we define our go-to-market strategy? How do we hire a sales team? How do we build customer success management teams? Uh, how do we learn from our customers? Like there's just so much to learn, which is why being an entrepreneur is a lot of fun. It's also crazy, but that kind of mindset around like, how do we systematically break down these problems it has just kind of permeated kind of all aspects of my life. What is your growth practice? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis or week-to-week -week basis? Um, how do you do it? When? And the biggest question, why? What are some of the things that you focus on? So not surprising, I have a system. <laughs> I have a couple systems, actually. So I have a tool that I use called OmniFocus. It's in the Apple ecosystem. But basically, think of it as a glorified task management system that ensures that the things that I've committed to doing, I do. And so that helps me with like the doing. And there's some other kind of habit trackers. Like, for example, if like, I'm, I got to make sure I'm flossing every day. So like use a, a habit tracker for, you know, don't ruin your streak. Those kind of little fun things. But what I, what I try to do is I'm, I, I think about what the things that are like most important to me right now. And I try to prioritize those and then I make time for them. And I go about trying to be disciplined about following through. So for example, maybe seven or eight months ago, I decided I was going to pick up guitar again. I learned it in high school and I hadn't played in like 20 years. And I've been playing 20 to 30 minutes, sometimes longer every morning. I'm waking up very early, but I'm making time for that because I felt like I needed a creative outlet and I love music. So I was like, I want to get good at guitar again. So I just decided I'm going to do that. And I then I just commit to doing it every single day. So I think to me, consistency is really key. That's obviously very important, especially if you're trying to get in shape. Consistency is really important. I'd say the other big piece for me on the knowledge side, so I tend to read a lot, but I don't tend to remember a lot off the top of my head. So I get the gist of things and I'm like, oh, I remember reading that. I come away with the concepts and the, the, the mental models, I would say, more so than the details because I don't remember the details, especially off the cuff. 
I've created a mind map for those familiar with it. It's just basically a way to link concepts together in a kind of very visual way. And so I have a personal growth mind map that my to-do list tracker reminds me to review and spend 30 minutes on every three weeks. It outlines things from what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Where, what are my 2019 goals? Uh, what's impeding my progress, achieving those goals? What are my personal values? What are things that I can change in my life versus not change in my life? I.e., what, what things can I just accept for the way they are? And what things should I try to change? It goes into reflecting on where I want to go in the business. And so it, it's a way for me to capture kind of my own personal mental model of where I want to take my personal growth. Incidentally, as I read books like Principles, for example, I turn all of those that I find, the books that I find very, very valuable, I turn those also into mind maps. And so when I'm like, oh man, there's a section in Ray Dalio's and I want to get back to that concept, I can just open up my mind map and I have it there. But actually the act of building the mind map is part of the way to like reinforce the concepts. So it's kind of like the reason also I do it. But again, it's the concept of like, I have this information, I have the information easily accessible and organized so that it's useful. And then I build a practice around updating it, reviewing it and pushing myself to, you know, am I really doing these things? Am I not doing these things? Should I, do I need to change my process? You just made me feel a little bit, a little bit better about myself because I underline, highlight, annotate, and write in books a lot. So I'm one of these guys who buys books. I don't listen to them on audio and I don't buy used books or borrow books. I buy all my books because I write in them like crazy. Yep. And then what I do when I'm done with them, the ones similar to you, the ones that really hit me hard where I've learned a ton as I go back and I actually type out everything that I underlined, highlighted yep. and wrote notes on. And then I've got that all in Evernote and partially because it's searchable for me. So yeah, exactly. And I found such power in that, but my gosh, it takes up a lot of time. It does. It does. And the thing is, I think it's the exercise of taking the time to reread it, writing it down, organizing it. It's just that you're spending more time with the material versus I'm just reading a bunch of stuff. It sounds really good. And then it's, and then it's gone. The thing that I've also found to be most helpful when I'm focusing my attention is to find things that are like relevant to what I'm doing. So oftentimes, you know, I'll read a lot of stuff, but if I'm reading something about, you know, sales strategy, but I'm not working on that right now, I might be like, I'll skim it. I'm like, yeah, this is great. I'll save it to Evernote, but I know I have it there, but I'm not going to like, I'm going to digest this and spend hours on it. But if there's something else that's highly relevant to what I'm working on now, I'm going to spend a lot of time with that material. Okay, so I want to come back to this whole guitar thing now for a moment, because you're co-founder and chief product officer, VP uh, of CTO, CTO yeah. of a growing company. You have two children under the age of three, yeah. right? One will be three in a week and a half. It's not like you have a lot of spare time on your hands. I know you wake up really early because yeah. you and I talk about that a lot. If you carved out 20 minutes every morning to play guitar after not doing so for 20 years, something had to give. Uh-huh. How do you make those decisions? I would say there's, for as busy as we all are, I feel like there's still a lot of wasted time. And it's so easy to like, oh, I pull up my phone, and I'm like looking at Instagram, or I pull up my phone, and I'm playing like a little game for 20 minutes. It's like, there's actually a lot of time that we waste. And so part of, I would say, what gave was TV. Part of what gave was being able to stay up later at night because I'm going to bed early. And now partly this is skewed because of our of our newborn. So she's hungry at, you know, 3.30 or 4. And then I just stay up. 
that has a sacrifice of, you know, being home and hanging out with my husband, which is, that's, that's a trade-off. So we'll see how it evolves once, once our youngest starts sleeping in a little bit more, which we're starting to get that glimpse, which another thing I'm very grateful for. Okay. So you're playing guitar, you're reading. What else do you do? What else is a part of your personal or professional growth? Actually, yeah, let's, let's kind of dovetail into the professional side of things. What do you do when it comes to professional growth? I do a lot of self-learning, actually. One of the things I wished that I had when we started the business in 2005 was a strong mentor network. Um, that's something that I've always felt like I lacked. But thankfully, I've always been kind of one where I'm like, I'm a self-learner and like I'm self-directed. And so that's fine. But there's a very different lesson and knowledge that comes from reading a book and having an academic understanding of something versus talking to somebody and working with somebody who's like done it. You can get there. You got to do it yourself. And then you're going to make a bunch of mistakes. Uh, and you're like, oh, I guess that's what that book meant when they said, don't do these things. I guess, oh, okay, now I get it. So professionally, it's much more around self-directed learning. Now, I would say that I'm very fortunate to be very close with my co-founders. And so the mentorship that I get is really from them because each of us have very different strengths, but yet overlapping skills. So we understand and empathize with each other's perspective and we value and trust you know, each of the insights that we're providing. And so we have a relationship such that we can call each other out on things or, hey, I see, I'm seeing this thing. It's like, this is kind of weird or whatever. I value that feedback because once you're at the top, you know, you're a founder of a company, it's really hard to get critical feedback about your own performance or ways that you could be improving. Hey, you should do this, do these things because oftentimes you're looked for the answers, but you don't have the answers uh, all the time that having that network. So that's why one of the reasons why I think Junto Institute is, is fabulous for, for other entrepreneurs. So Grant, you just brought up my mentorship in that last response. You've been a mentor now with Junto for two or three years, I believe. Mm -hmm. How has, and, and let me qualify this by acknowledging that we have a structured methodical way to mentorship that uh, sometimes takes a little bit of time for people to adapt to. So I, I'm, I'm aware of that. But how has your mentoring with us shaped your views towards mentorship? And if it hasn't, it hasn't, but I'm yeah. curious how it has. Listening, for sure. I would say is the number one difference. Oftentimes when you're in a meeting with the team, the team immediately looks to you for an answer or like for you to go first. And I think the strategy that Junto uses around making sure that everyone has a chance to contribute to the conversation where one person isn't going to dominate it, I think is helpful, you know, make sure that the value is evenly distributed. And I would say that appreciations are another thing that have been very valuable at work. In fact, going back to my system, I have a reminder, a checklist that I can either do or don't follow through on is can I send the team any appreciation today? It comes on my to-do list every three to four days, and it just makes me pause and think, did the team do anything really awesome this week that I'm really appreciative of? And so that's just an example of where it's so easy to forget to appreciate the people around you. And so again, being the engineer and the, and the systems thinker, I have a system to make sure that I'm spending the time to reflect on being appreciative. Well, I, I couldn't have set that up any better because uh, <laughs> you know how we're going to close here. Uh, with a round of appreciations. I feel very appreciative that I have the opportunity to be on this podcast with you. This is very exciting. I'm also very appreciative of my family and my family at work. I just, every day I wake up and I'm surrounded by people I love to be around and there's really no other gift to have the opportunity to be around people that you love every day. So I'm very, very appreciative for that. I appreciate your energy. I appreciate the energy that you bring to a room when we're holding a session appreciate the energy you bring to me when we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation like this. And especially after learning today about 
your childhood and being bullied and how that can sometimes have the reverse effect Mm -hmm. where that can result in someone who takes energy from others, which, and I've had some experience with that. I have even more appreciation as a result for the energy that you bring. So thank you for doing that, not only in Junto, but I imagine in your home and uh, in your workplace. Thank you. Well, Grant, it's been a joy having you here on uh, this episode. Appreciate the time. You bet. So there you have it with Grant and Chris. I hope you're able to see why I admire Chris and Grant for who they are. These are two men who are very practically and yet significantly living out the values that they have as human beings. It's been very refreshing to me as someone who's been around the block a couple of times, seeing that more and more companies today are putting a focus on creating and articulating their core values. But one thing that we see companies struggle with is putting language to those values and trying to think of how many they should have, how they should use them, and most importantly, how they can live them. So one of the things that we do, one of the tactics we use is to ask people to think about their personal values or perhaps even their family values. What were the things that their families instilled in them as they were growing up? And while those might not be written down or put on posters on a wall or maybe even on the back of a business card, they're useful tools for us as we build our core values. The big difference, however, is that our parents or our guardians would instill those values in us and then hope to see the behaviors, especially if they were suitable role models. In a company, however, it's not as clean and not as sequential. In fact, I would argue that the manifestation happens on a day-to-day basis, and as a result, the values can be developed as a result of those behaviors and the language that's used. And so in this case, we see how two people take the core values that they have as human beings and bring them to the world through the form of their activism and their philanthropy. And in a similar sense, the question for all of us is not only how do we live out our personal values on a daily basis, but how do our core values in business actually show up on a daily basis in our language and our behavior? And if we don't know how that is being lived out, then perhaps one of the more useful things to do is to simply observe from almost a third-person perspective what people say, what people do on a daily basis, and from that begin the process of crafting our core values. My deep appreciation to both Chris and Grant for contributing to today's session and look forward to being with you next time. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.